Welcome everybody. It's the 3rd of June and the day after Singapore lifted its stringent set of uh, public and private interaction um, measures to curb the transmission of the novel coronavirus 2019. Welcome to the Institute of Policy Studies Forum titled Bouncing Back from COVID-19. Uh, this is the fourth event uh, that the Institute is putting up under its series of uh, um, events called the IPS Online. This is where we discuss governance and public policy issues that you care about. Since we're coming out to you on Facebook Live, it couldn't be easier for you to participate in this forum. Simply put your comments and questions on the page. And of course, you can also tap on comments and questions that the participants contribute if you want me and my panelists to take note and respond to those comments and questions. Well, back to the special day that this is today, yes? Still, it's the day after Singapore started its three-phase lifting of what we call the circuit breaker measures to curb the transmission of COVID-19. This set of circuit breaker measures uh, have actually been able to lower the average number of community cases a day through uh, the first week of circuit breaker, which stood at 33.3, uh, down to what it is today, which is 3.7 community cases a day this past week. That's a reduction to the factor of 10. Um, the average number of cases in the foreign worker dormitories, of course, peaked during the circuit breaker period and now stands at an average of about 495 cases a day in the past week ending 2nd June. In total, with the active testing and contract tracing, Singapore identified a total of 335,836 uh, 3, cases over the past four months uh, since the first case was diagnosed on the 23rd of January. January. Sadly, 24 people have succumbed to COVID-19. Now a little bit background, uh, it's a stealthy virus as we've learned from people uh, uh, who have been doing the research, including one of the panelists with us today, Dr. Bernard Lee. As it turns out, people who have no symptoms are able to pass the virus on. And it's a silent and fast virus. Um, as we know, in countries where the uh, surge uh, overwhelmed the healthcare system, the fatality rates uh, among the infected have been very high, and it's also taken many healthcare workers with it. But in Singapore, we uh, have been um, able to see how uh, the healthcare systems managed to flatten the curve of infection, and those who have succumbed uh, tended to be those who are 65 years and older and people with underlying medical conditions. We've seen the government respond uh, in order to save lives and livelihoods, businesses and workers. Also to try and support the community and give more targeted assistance to those in the vulnerable groups and those who have unfortunately lost their jobs in the course of these strict circuit breaker measures to curb. Uh, social and business interactions. So here we are at the start of the three phases of the lifting 
of these circuit breaker measures. Uh, the first being uh, safe reopening, which may last a month before we move to safe transition, which may last a few months where uh, there's almost a full resumption of business and social activities. And we finally land in safe nation when all business and social activities resume with, of course, stringent healthcare and safety measures in workplaces, in social settings and in public places until COVID-19 is neutralized. Thank you for being here. And our topic is bouncing back from COVID-19. The question we're setting for ourselves this afternoon is, given that the government has committed um, close to $100 billion in a COVID response plan and also introduced several innovative policy reforms in order to protect lives and livelihoods, what else can we do as leaders across Singapore, as members of the public, to ensure that our process of reopening Singapore is a smooth, steady, quick uh, pace of recovery and adaptation. Adaptation because we also want to bounce back firmer, stronger, and more resilient. So to tackle some of the questions that uh, uh, follow from that, for instance, what's the outlook on neutralizing COVID-19? What's the threat? What can we do as the business community and the social community to ensure uh, that we bounce back smoothly and safely? And finally, how do we ensure that Singapore is a safe and resilient, livable and almost lovable habitat for all who are here? We have a very special group of panelists today. Let me introduce them very quickly, but you can find their full biographical profile on the IPS website. First, Dr. Vernon Lee, who's Director of Communicable Diseases at the Ministry of Health and Adjunct Associate Professor at the Salisbury Hawk School of Public Health at National University of Singapore. He has held two posts at the World Health Organization and remains a very key member in the global network of epidemiologists advising uh, our government, but also connecting with the rest of his community to discuss how to manage COVID-19. Second, we are also going to benefit from the views of Professor David Chan, who is Director of Behavioral Sciences Institute at the Singapore Management University. He's an expert on, um, and a decorated scholar really, for his work on uh, explaining attitudes and behaviors at work, but also what contributes to people's sense of well-being, uh, their ability to uh, innovate, and also to lead. Next, we're just as privileged to have Mr. Lo Likping. He's the founder and owner of the unlisted collection of hotels and food and beverage outlets uh, with assets from that, that span Singapore, Shanghai, London, and Sydney. Um, so he's someone who knows what it means to serve demanding and discerning patrons as long as the world can reopen and bounce back along with Singapore. So we'll be very happy to hear his views from the ground. He also chairs various agencies that look at tourism, heritage conservation, as well as volunteerism in Singapore. Next, we're proud to feature a person who's special to the IPS community. She is Dr. Chong Kun Hien, the IPS 
fifth SR Northern Fellow for the study of Singapore, an architect, planner, and urbanist. Uh, she did her duty as the SR Northern Fellow in delivering five, le uh, three lectures on the way that uh, um, Singapore has shaped its urban environment, taking into uh, account many innovative practices. And she also shared with us her vision of what Singapore can look like in the future. And last but not least is Dr. Nyo Munsiong. He is uh, Dean, he was Dean of the Nanyang Business School twice. Uh, and he's um, the author more critically of a book called Dynamic Governance, which is, has almost been like a Bible to the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy for his appeal to public and private organizations to embed with them, within them a culture of learning, a culture of adaptation in order to cope with the uncertain uh, global environment that we all face today. And I would argue that it's very appropriate to discuss with us what it will take for decision makers across Singapore to adapt to the new environment that COVID-19 has brought to us. So with that, let's start with our conversation, but a reminder to our audience, you can already begin to share with us your comments, questions, and also nuggets of information you think can help us in our uh, discussion about new ideas, new insights about bouncing back from COVID-19 successfully. So first off, let's go to Vernon. Vernon, share with us, what's the latest thinking on the virus, uh, the management of transmission and treatment, and of course, the end game of neutralizing COVID-19? This is the threat that we have been trying to manage. What are we certain about and what can we not be certain about? Over to you, Vernon, please. Thank you, Gillian. So, I mean, this is a new virus, and although a lot of uh, research and evidence has been gathered over the past uh, several months about COVID-19, uh, there are still a lot of aspects about this new virus that we do not yet know about. What we do know is that the virus spreads extremely easily, um, almost like influenza. However, complication and case fatality rates are higher than the common flu, especially among the elderly and those with uh, pre-existing medical conditions. So. Uh, we have indeed been trying to advise um, these individuals at higher risk to uh, be aware and also to reduce their contacts and uh, opportunities for getting infection. We also now know that asymptomatic and also pre-symptomatic transmission exists and um, it makes then control of spread uh, more challenging. And that's why we have been strengthening uh, you know, our contact tracing activities and also rolling out measures such as um, requiring the use of masks and also physical distancing to reduce any opportunities for spread, even if uh, people are in the asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic phase. Uh, the long-term immunity of this virus after infection is also uncertain. And you know, a lot of people are asking uh, about things like uh, you know, herd immunity, which is something that um, I think no country has yet uh, achieved. So uh, it's unlikely that just by having infections, go, uh, you know, moving along that we will achieve immunity for the entire population. So finally, uh, there's also the question about then drugs and vaccines. Um, these are currently being trialed across the world. Um, you know, there are some drugs and uh, that show promise. Uh, there's be recently been 
uh, some announcements of uh, vaccine trials that have shown some possible uh, um, successes. But these are early days yet. Uh, the time it takes to really bring a vaccine uh, through all the different um, uh, stages of trials and to get it registered and manufactured will take a while. So in between um, now till when we have an effective vaccine, we will then have to have a lot of safe management measures. We have to change the way we, we live and learn to adapt and coexist with the virus so that we can keep infection rates low. And more importantly, we can reduce complication rates and also fatalities, which is what we have been uh, achieving in Singapore to a large extent. Well, thank you for that overview. Uh, it doesn't sound like we are certain about very much, except that it spreads quickly and that there is a asymptomatic transmission and that you are working hard on uh, treatment as well as uh, immunity. Um, so if, if what you're saying is we do have to live with the virus with safe management techniques, I think they're not entirely new as Singapore was already in that regime before the circuit breaker measures were put in place. Then uh, what more can we do? Uh, especially um, if we've looked at how other countries have opened up and then seen cases of uh, uh, transmission pop up again. What's our level of tolerance for, uh, um, um, I guess, uh, an increase or rise in infection before we decide we have to reverse course, but hopefully never, of course. <laughs> Indeed. Well, we hope certainly not to, uh, to, to get there. And, and therefore, uh, what we've been trying to do is to keep infections as low as possible. It is difficult to say I want to keep it at a certain number because um, once infections start rising, infections will beget more infections. And um, as we've seen across the world, uh, the number of infections can go very quickly and run out of control. So the aim there must be to reduce infections as low as possible, given the suite of measures that are available to us. If you remember in the previous forum, I was talking about the need to have multiple layers of measures in the sort of Swiss cheese approach, because no one measure is totally effective, but multiple measures provide that safety net. And in Singapore, we have enacted many safety nets during the circuit breaker period. We want to stay one step ahead of the virus. So when we entered the circuit breaker, it was in anticipation that cases might increase because it was seeing sort of an upward trajectory. And we have then now forced that number of infections down to a very low level. Um, it also bought us time to roll out and to strengthen safe management measures across all segments of society and businesses. This includes having a comprehensive surveillance and also testing strategy and capacity so that we can test and identify cases as early as possible. Of course, contact tracing, active case finding, we're familiar with so that we can isolate cases and quarantine close contacts quickly. Then our healthcare capacity, we have also been ramping that up to be able to manage COVID cases to keep complication rates low. And that's what I think in Singapore you, you've seen uh, we've succeeded in, in that front. Um, also public education, we've rolled out a lot of public education messages. And then finally, safe management messages, such as you know, wearing of masks, safe distancing, reducing a number of contacts. Even if we open up the, the economy and there are more people out and about, with these measures, we hope still keep cases as low as possible. And for, to do this, it's not just you know, the government's uh, part or business's part. We need everyone in the community to work together because the next uh, few months or even a year until the vaccine becomes available, 
will be very important. We have to change the way we approach uh, how we do things. We have to live with this new norm and to adjust our lifestyles to cope with um, the virus. And, and having this uh, you know, forum over Zoom is exactly one way of how we have adapted. And I think we have done very well. If we can continue mm -hmm. to adapt, not to be complacent, we would be able to live side by side with the virus and to keep rates as low as possible. Okay, so you're not going to be able to, uh, uh, or I'm not going to be able to pin you down to a certain number, uh, the average number of community cases a week, uh, let's say, before you feel that we do have to reverse course. Do you have that number? No, so we, are, we are monitoring various indicators. <laughs> it could be number of cases, they could be you know, the number of unlinked cases in the community, um, things like uh, you know, healthcare capacity, what are the groups of people that are infected, what are the different risk factors. So there are a multitude of different indicators that we monitor. There's no single indicator like a single number, magic number that we are looking at. Because okay. to look at a single number, like I mentioned, uh, is challenging and also dangerous because we don't want to just be fixed on a single indicator and two. All right, so, fair uh, enough. Then I really have to ask you this question. Um, there's a lot of talk about immunity certificates or passports that might vouch for a person's, uh, person being uh, presumably COVID-free. Uh, and that would be really one thing that would help, uh, um, I guess, in businessmen's minds, uh, people doing uh, you know, international commerce, trade and all that, uh, that will help them bounce back. What uh, is the prospect of that going forward? And uh, are there any downsides to pinning our hopes to uh, that sort of system? So immunity certificates, passports, or travel bubbles, um, green lane panels for uh, people traveling uh, between uh, countries that are clear. So what do you say, Vernon? So there's a lot of talk now about uh, you know, these issues, whether it's green lanes or immunity passports. Um, I think green lanes, there are a lot of countries that are now looking like um, if the rates, between the, the rates of COVID infections between say two countries are very similar, then theoretically there's actually no difference if you're in a community in one country versus in the other, and you can technically travel more freely. Um, but there needs to be a lot more thinking put into this as well, um, because you know, um, the movement of people um, and, and close contacts when people move around does increase the risk of infection. So I okay. think there's been a lot of discussion and discussion is still ongoing, but this is something that we'll certainly be looking forward to uh, to some extent. Um, about regarding immunity passports, I think this is something that's uh, very tricky because this is a new disease. Uh, as mentioned earlier, we do not yet know what is the long-term immunity for individuals who have been infected. We don't yet have a vaccine. And really the only example where a similar concept of immunity passport has been used for global travel is for yellow fever. Yellow fever vaccination, if you remember, uh, when you get vaccinated, you have this uh, WHO yellow book with the vaccination certificate. And with that, you can then travel to yellow fever and endemic areas. And, and that is a form of immunity passport. But don't forget that yellow fever has been around uh, the yellow fever vaccine has been around for decades and there's a lot that we know about a vaccine such as the fact that it provides almost pretty much lifelong immunity so we need i think a lot more data but it's something that i think all governments and the who is looking at okay and i think there's a comment from facebook uh from the facebook page about real-time health tracking maybe we can come back to that later but yeah. let me uh throw this over now to uh Dr. professor david chan uh david um, you've heard how uh, there is still quite a lot of uncertainty 
about uh, the uh, future going forward with COVID-19. Therefore, uh, all the safe uh, management practices still need to be in place. But what to your mind are the key issues that we need to grapple with as we uh, lift the circuit breaker measures, really want Singapore businesses, Singapore community organizations to bounce back. What do you think uh, are the key issues in your mind? And really, I, I guess uh, because we're a unique global city, um, I'd ask you, how do you think we have been doing and how do you think we'll do in this very complex process of recovery and adaptation? Okay, uh, that's a pretty holistic, multi-dimensional question. I'll try my best. Anyway, good to see everybody here virtually though. Um, I think we are on day two, officially on day two of phase one of the uh, exiting the CB, the circuit breaker. But depending on who you are, if you're someone like me, you might feel that you are extending the circuit breaker, you know, because it depends on your lifestyle. So I think it is quite important when we look at these phases about exit, about when do you exit, it really depends on the segment or the individual involved. Uh, in your lifestyle, how you are affected, and to the extent that you are affected uh, much more uh, if, uh, because there are certain strict uh, restrictions that apply to you, you might feel that it's an extension. The reason I say that is it's quite important then to individualize uh, all these talks about when phase one, phase two, and so on, because what is phase one and phase two to you might be quite different from phase one and phase two to me. But having said that, the government or our national leaders have said that um, the way that they will decide is to, uh, based on public health and to look at uh, uh, the measures is, uh, will, will be eased, right, depending on the community transmission, the trends of the community transmission. And I think uh, I agree with Vernon and what we are, I think the government is also trying to say without using those words, there is essentially a judgment call uh, as to when do you have to open up and so on, rather than a magical number or whether the, oh, the trend has been fulfilled. Because uh, ultimately, this is not just about lives, it's also about livelihood. Uh, and it, to the extent that you do not open and you want to wait for the zero number for two, three weeks, uh, first, it may not happen. Uh, and every country kind of know that. And that's why countries are already beginning to open. But it's a delicate balance uh, in terms of uh, what happened if I open uh, that versus the cost of lives of people getting uh, hospitals, getting overwhelmed and so on. So when Jillian, you asked me the questions, how we have done, well, if you look at the number in ICU, if you look at the fatality rates and you look at whether our hospitals are overwhelmed, I guess by all objective standards, uh, they are not overwhelmed. So in that sense, I, I, I would be quite okay uh, if there continue to be cases, but our hospitals can still cope and we ensure that in the community, uh, things are in place, we can still function. But I don't think it's a matter of functioning back to normalcy. Uh, there's something that is quite important because you and I may disagree on when we should open up. But there's something that I don't think we should disagree too much, and that's to recognize that this crisis is not a temporary one. It's actually a prolonged one. And what that means is that when Vernon said live with the virus, uh, I would add to Vernon, what Vernon said about living with the virus is definitely HMD, right? It's your hygiene, it's your mask, and your distancing. Right? You need to have your hygiene anyway from henceforth. Let's have personal hygiene. Yeah? Uh, mask and distancing, you don't know when you will stop, but it's going to be with us for a few months. So HMD is coexisting and living with the virus from a kind of epidemiological prevention kind of point of view. But there's really much more to that. I guess to live with the virus for most of us, at least those of us who are social behavioral scientists and I'm sure leaders as well, is, is how are you going to live with and deal with the upcoming challenges in the post-pandemic post realities? Uh, and the point about, I heard a, a word that Julian you used about being uncertain and Vernon used that word too. 
and the uncertainty is really not just about the, the community transmission or even just about the virus. I think the uncertainty needs to be seen in a, what we call a vulgar world in management. And that what we are what is before us is a pretty volatile situation. It is uncertain. It is actually quite complex because one thing is going to lead to another and affect another and so on. And it's quite ambiguous. Sometimes you may have a rule, but you're not sure this rule is good or not good for my business. So what am I going to do? Right. So it is really quite important to look at it from a, a very vulgar perspective and learn to adapt. So what are those strategies? And I suppose uh, not everybody is able to adapt as quickly and as uh, uh, effectively as uh, others. So just looking across Singapore, are there different groups we should be concerned about uh, when you talk about uh, coping with the VUCA world and adapting to that reality? Yes, I think we have heard a lot about vulnerable groups, about seniors, about people, about inequality, about people with, without resources, that when you have home-based learning, what if I don't have a computer? And by the way, it's not just a matter of having a computer and you are soft. If, my, if, my, if I come from a low-income household, and if I'm a student, I'm, I'm actually studying at home, I might be expected to help out with my parents uh, due to my parents' financial situation and do certain housework and so on. So having a computer at my house itself may not completely solve the problem. Now, those issues, frankly, uh, uh, we, we, I think people are quite uh, cognizant of it. And so you need NGOs to come in, you need uh, organizations, you need the government uh, to come in, and you need the schools and MOE to come in to make sure these are taken care of. So I wouldn't dwell so much about vulnerable groups, but Jiden, if you could let me make a statement about the masses, you know, for many of us, uh, sometimes you think you are not vulnerable. Uh, you might be wrong because the notion of adaptation really is dependent on the demands that's confronting us. The demands, because it is new, the problems are ill-defined, the demands are going to be new. And when the demands are new, it means that what had worked for you in the past may no longer work uh, currently. Now, this applies to policies, it applies to leaders, it applies to you and I, and we need to be really quite careful about the adaptation process and learn from it. Okay, but we do have a question, a real quick one from Shermaine, and she says that Singapore's migrant workers were hit the hardest during the COVID uh, searches. What additional social safety nets should be put in place for people like them and other financially and socially disadvantaged people? Um, do you have any quick um, sort of views on that? It's a big question. Uh, we'll probably come back to it again, but just a quick one before we move on to our next panelist. Okay, very quick, very quick one. Uh, I don't think we have time to for me to give a fair answer regarding the yes. migrant workers. Just remember that there is a committee set up as far as we know, and a lot of things are being done, and it's going to be a long-term process and so on. Uh, the, the other quick thing I just want to say is that uh, it is all since February I've been trying to say that, right? It is about life, it is about livelihood, but it is also about our way of life and it's also about our quality of life. So I think moving forward, just remember, it's just not life, health, livelihood, economic survival. Things are going to change so much. It's about the way we live and it is also going to be the quality of life that we want to continue as a country. So how do we do that? Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, I think at that point, um, you know, let's cut to the question of livelihoods. I think the greatest anxiety that uh, uh, probably arose with the circuit breaker measures was really uh, the severe lockdown here, um, business activity. Of course, we're told it's just that business places are closed, but businesses should continue. Uh, but we also saw lockdowns in other countries which are our key markets. So I think, um, you know, we are realistic and uh, um, the official projections to uh, um, the impact on GDP is that we will 
probably see it shrink by four to seven percent this year. Um, so I'd really like to now bring in uh, our next panelist, Mr. Lolik Ping. Ping, as someone who depends on tourism and um, you know the hospitality trade, food and beverage, uh, you are most adversely affected by this global pandemic. So could you just give us your first person account of uh, how this has affected you, uh, your businesses? Um, but of course, I recognize that you can also span out to how you've experienced it in your assets uh, across the world in the other global cities as well. So uh, quick cut over to you, Peng. Okay, so I think, I think this is a, a, a unique situation in that the effects have been global, right? And I think in a country like Singapore, where we have, you know, upwards of 18, 19 million tourists a year, um, the, the effects of li literally closure of the borders in Singapore, as well as the uh, uh, closure of, of restaurants and, and kind of social activities has been very, very uh, severe on, the, on the, certainly the hospitality industry. So we have seen, you know, drops of 70 to 80 percent in, in some instances. I, I mean, I, I know of a lot of colleagues in the industry who have had to close their restaurants permanently. So I think the effect has been dramatic. It has been fast. It has been very, very deep. Um, and, you know, one thing I will say that is uh, also has been uh, really good is the government response has been also equally swift <laughs> and equally deep. So we have seen uh, both sides of the coin in Singapore. Um, and, and, you know, the, obviously the lockdown continues and I think we are also concerned about obviously what happens after the lockdown comes. But at the moment, uh, you, you've seen restaurants in Singapore certainly shift to delivery, to um, takeouts, um, and also to do other things like, you know, sell grocery boxes, uh, sell retail ingredients. Um, so you, you're seeing that we are pivoting in, in industry to, to do different things. Um, and you're seeing three Michelin star do, restaurants do takeouts, right? You would never have imagined Les Amis doing takeout or Odette doing a takeout uh, meal before this. So you've seen some, some radical changes in the business model uh, for people and, and, and industry has reacted very rapidly to adapt. Um, some industries are, are able to do that, some are not. If you're a hotel and you require uh, visitors to come in and they're not coming in, then business is going to take a plunge and it's, it's very little you can do, right? If you are selling rooms and there are no visitors, you're in trouble. And, and you know, I'm chairman of the Singapore Cruise Center. And again, what you've seen in, in, in Singapore and worldwide is that the cruise industry has taken an uh, enormous uh, impact from this because they were on the front line of the infections, right? Yeah. I think the, you, you were seeing comments about cruise lines being like uh, petri dishes for, for this COVID and you, you were seeing mass infection. So cruise has been badly affected. Regional travel, ferries, all these things have all been severely impacted. And business from air travel to ferries to sea transport has dropped um, by over 90%. And, and you know those industries have a hard time pivoting. They have a hard time um, finding other ways to generate uh, revenue because literally they depend on travelers coming in. So I think the effects you see on both sides. It's, it's okay. Well, Lionel Lau um, on Facebook has asked jobs. How long will it take to adjust and adapt to the new job market? What are the types of jobs, training and adjustments by businesses, adjustments to costs, adjustments to actually how they do their businesses, changes to business models, how they're going to do that? I think 
you know, we've seen a lot of government support to uh, try and uh, the government says not protect jobs, but protect workers. Yeah. Um, you know, clearly a lot of work to try and insulate workers from the effects of COVID. Tell us a little bit about how you or your industry is trying to innovate so that uh, perhaps as many jobs as possible can be kept, but you're also creating new jobs and uh, new poles of growth uh, coming out of COVID-19. Ping? Yeah, so I think, I think one of the things that uh, we have seen very rapidly is the adoption of technology, right? I think um, if you look at the restaurant industry, you could, you could argue that um, it's one of the, the least productive industries, it's one of the least technologically driven industries. It's an industry that has traditionally, certainly in the media, had this image of having lots of people uh, washing dishes and, and having to serve and lots of chefs doing fairly manual work. And I wouldn't disagree with that description, actually. Uh, the hotel and the restaurant industry um, has largely been manpower-driven. They are manpower-intensive industries. But I, I, I think you are starting to see a shift in, in how um, people look at the restaurant industry. You're starting to see a, a shift in, in how they view manpower, right? Rather than just being an input that allows you to, to produce a certain output, you know? And, and I think you are starting to see certainly how uh, uh, restaurants are looking at the digital world as a different market. So if you look at, uh, uh, I gave an example, Les Amis and, and Odette uh, earlier, you know, they've jumped on delivery platforms. They're looking at how to reach out to a different audience because, you know, the person who would sit down and pay $1,000 a head for dinner um, and have a four-hour-long dinner, that, that person is sitting at home and you're not going to be able to service him, but you have uh, overheads of your staff. So you, you're starting to see them innovate in there menus and sorry okay well you're in the high touch industry so that's yeah. the irony of it you're you know uh COVID-19 you can't do high touch so maybe you're going to have to go forward with no touch uh yeah. just give us a few insights into how uh you know hospitality is going to move into that in order to save jobs and create new jobs okay so I'll give you an example of hotels right you look at the hotels nowadays um, we are all shifting towards a, a, a zero-touch type of uh, check-in system. So you're, you're going to start seeing RFID locks, door locks. You're going to start seeing automated check-ins where you have a little QR code and you scan your phone and, and you do your check-in from there. You know, you do your ID verification. So I think you're starting to see this type of things. And, and restaurants are adopting that too, right? If you look at how we are looking at the new uh, normal, all of these... Uh, standards have to come in and re really have to come in in a, in a very holistic way because the old way of operating is going to disappear, literally disappear for the next year, you know, at least yeah. the next year, maybe longer. So I think if you look at investments going in now, and I think you will see kitchens too. Uh, we are looking at certain um, um, sort of segregation um, uh, 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 solutions for our kitchen so that one part of the kitchen is totally segregated from another. And right. the front of house is segregated from the from the kitchen team, right? So you pass dishes to to these uh, portals, and and you have very little physical interaction between each uh, person. So all these solutions are being trialed now. I think they're at an early stage. So restaurants are a little bit further behind on this, but hotels are right onto it, you know. And I think hotels, I think obviously, always have that advantage of having um, um, that sort of industry to to work with. 
Thanks, Ping. I think uh, it's your industry that uh, pre-COVID added the buzz to Singapore as a global city. And we really hope that there'll be a new way of doing things to bring that buzz back. Uh, um, but now that's sort of an, uh, uh, um, uh, my way of trying to uh, introduce the next panelist, uh, Dr. Cheong Kunhian. Kunhian, uh, hi, you're somebody who's been actually responsible for uh, shaping uh, the, the global city that you know, was exciting and really vibrant uh, before COVID uh, in terms of its built environment uh, for uh, the tourism trade, but also for business community and locals as well, the local community. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how um, we should think as we zoom out, think about our uh, the design of our city so that it's a little more pandemic proof or not little, but a lot more pandemic proof um, because I think that that's going to be central to the question of what David talked about HMD with the D being very integral. How do we maintain that safe distancing and yet have the broad range of activities that makes life um, you know, exciting, livable and makes Singapore lovable really. So over to you Kunhian, what can we do that's good for business but also good for people in the long-term planning of our city. Hi, Gillian, and uh, everyone out there, how are you? I hope everyone's keeping well. Uh, well, I think the health crisis has evolved into also an urban crisis, and it's going to force us to rethink about city planning and city form. But I just want to caution that uh, the, the virus issue is still evolving, as Vernon have said. And secondly, that any new planning paradigms cannot be based solely on COVID-19 because future pandemics may actually take a very different nature. So I think we do need to bear that in mind. And it's also about the short, medium term where we're looking at a containment, insulation, uh, looking at existing assets and operations versus the long-term changes. So there is a timeline uh, that will make a difference to city planning. So I'm just going to touch on two broad issues uh, to address your question. I think the first is about increasing resilience. So how do we increase resilience to be pandemic ready? One is about increasing self-reliance. As we can see, the pandemic already caused major disruptions in supply chain, whether it's food or construction material. So to be more crisis ready, we really need to strengthen our ability to be more self-reliant, whether we do some local manufacturing or to diversify our resources or to even do stockpiling. I think a lot has been discussed on that. And as the second part is it's really also about enhancing what I call rapid adaptability. The pandemics can result in a surge of sick people in a very short time. And so resilience also means that we need to be able to rapidly adapt our operations and assets to create very quick temporary housing and health centers to take care of the sick people. The second broad issue uh, to address your question really is, so how can the city evolve in this new era of safe distancing and particularly in a dense city like Singapore. I think first is to start thinking about re-spacing our city at different scales. So what do I mean? I think conceptually we have to think about how to create bubbles at different scales where we can contain and insulate as and when necessary. And it's also the idea of de-densifying and reducing crowdedness. So for example, at the country level, we already talked about travel bubbles where countries uh, uh, put themselves in a bubble, but they link up to another bubble 
which has less infection or the same rate of infection, and then they deal at the interface, right? Whether you have these uh, special passports or you have to test people before they come in. At a regional level, if you imagine Singapore to be divided into regions, you actually want more self-sufficient regions where you have jobs and amenities closer to homes. So this minimizes travel on public transport. It helps to thin out densities in the city and in commercial hubs. In fact, we've already been doing our decentralization efforts in developing polycentric centers to serve different regions. But we have to rethink, how large should this be? What is the pace of these polycentric centers that we want to build? And do we still need so much office space? So these are lots of questions. Now, then we go down to the neighborhood level. There'll be more localization we can think about because you want to achieve self-sufficiency at a much more local level. You have shops, daily amenities, parks that are nearby at your doorstep. You can reach them easily, particularly for the elderly. And you don't have to travel. You don't have to take public transport. And fortunately, in the HDB towns, many of our towns are already organized as neighborhoods served by neighborhood centers. So that's the good news. We are pretty much actually on the way in doing some of these things. Next level is the building level, right? Uh, if we talk about working spaces, I think people will still need to go to the office because there is the issue of creative collaboration uh, and creativity. And that is important when people get together. Although we are mindful that there'll be a lot of remote working as well. So it means that the office space will start to have to be right-sized and redesigned. Maybe you get more co-working spaces and conference facilities that people share instead of having your own office. And uh, I think health, wellness, hygiene becomes very, very critical. And we, of course, have to de-densify the office. So further apart, workstations, we have screens. The other thing is to start thinking about your building design, air conditioning. We have a lot of air conditioning. So you need to think about the type of filters you use. Do you have disinfectants using UV light? And you want it to be very contactless, right? Whether it's taps, lift buttons, door handles, they soon have to be sensor triggered rather than us touching and then worrying about it. And the use of antimicro coatings on surfaces. Living spaces, all of us are working at home right now. So we have to think about the redesign of the living space. Uh, how do we get more privacy? into the homes because you have your kids, the, the husband and the wife, they're all working and we're all talking together. So that has to be thought about in terms of design and also communal type accommodation. And it's not just about workers' dorms. It's also about nursing homes, school hostels, where a lot of people are gathered living together, particularly in the same room. It's a problem. It has to be spread out. You have to segregate. So the building design has to be thought about. I don't have time to go into that, but there's been a lot of suggestions on this. I just want to touch also on urban transport and logistics. Yes. You need to minimize crowdedness, right? And telecommuting helps people to minimize crowdedness. Maybe with uh, digital technology, you can do real-time seat management on buses and trains. And uh, maybe more people will go back to using personal mobility devices. And we want to encourage more people to walk and to cycle. If you have less cars on the road, maybe we can take back some road spaces and widen our pavements and cycling tracks. Now, this other idea about moving from brick to click for online shopping, it means you need to move goods in a much more efficient way and to collect them also in a more efficient way. 
So I think they will accelerate this idea of the parcel collection points. We already have pop-up boxes, but I think a lot of these will accelerate. And how about delivery by drones? If that picks up, I think further into the future, you have to think about how the drones can park, pick up parcels, take off, land. So maybe instead of car parks, you also have drone parks at the same time. So these are pretty futuristic ideas, which I talk about is more long-term, right? Not so much in the immediate uh, term. Yes. Innovation and technology will play a very, very important role, right? We have big data analysis and geospatial tools. They help in trend analysis and contact tracing. There's robotics and automation solutions for safe distancing enforcement, service delivery, uh, you have drones, which I talked about for deliveries, maybe more autonomous vehicles in time to come because you don't have drivers. So I think all these are videos, cameras, data from these all become very important. Just one final comment, um, Julian. Yes. You know, you cannot address pandemics with just planning and design solutions. It really requires a collaborative and integrated response. And there are many things we need, good leadership, collaboration, uh, with amongst many agencies, many organizations. It's also about social buy-in of your safe distancing measures and then whether people are prepared to share data for contact tracing. So really, it is also about a very united and socially responsible community where everyone plays a part to help. Wow, that's quite a comprehensive answer. You've taken us from uh, national self-sufficiency to looking at self-sufficiency within regions. Uh, you talked about our neighborhoods. Sounded a little bit like uh, how we built satellite towns in the first place, but you also took us into uh, the living spaces in our flats uh, where we can accommodate uh, many more people working all at the same time in that space. So how do we do that? You also talked about mobility and maybe using real-time seat management uh, apart from personal mobility devices and uh, really moving things around. If we are in the uh, not brick click economy, then uh, how do we deal with the logistics? I like the final point because that's a way in which we can jump to uh, Bun Siong. Dr. Nyo Bun Siong has been waiting very patiently. And you said that at the end of the day with that uh, range of new and innovative ways of doing the city, uh, the, the heart of it, the, what will make it work is really collaboration and an integral integrative look at some of these issues that matter to all of us and uh, you also mentioned the need for social buy-in so let me cut to Dr. Nyobun Siong who is our governance expert and I'll ask him as someone who tracks decision making in public and private organizations um, you know uh, you emphasize the need for the adaptive capacity to deal with not just uh, the uncertainties that life brings us, but also some of the opportunities that Ping has talked about, Bun Hien has talked about. Can we go to Bun Siong and ask him, how are we able uh, to kind of take all this on board in Singapore? How are we doing in terms of uh, having that adaptive capacity? What's your assessment through this time of COVID-19? Bun Siong? Uh, thank you very much, Juliet. Uh, and. Uh... In fact, uh, the, the issue of uncertainty, the VUCA environment, almost every one of the panelists have spoken about. And if you look at what we have done in the last few months, we really had to act even when we do not have all the information. Right. And we also learned very quickly that uh, things can change quite fast. 
Uh, that means that our decision making uh, will have to become more dynamic, it become more agile. We have to learn to act fast, act frequently, with flexibility, but never losing sight of our focus on safety and our survival. So even as we bounce back, uh, the uncertainty is going to still uh, be there. It's going to be an evolving situation as Vernon, I think, has uh, alluded to very clearly. That means that we still have to be similarly agile even as we go forward. We cannot wait for full information. We cannot expect total clarity before we act. We will probably have to learn to sense and adjust as we go. So businesses, for example, I should not expect government to have crystal clear, stable guidelines, regulations, and uh, to have anything that will be stable for months or even years on end without changing. I think we know that in this kind of evolving situation, the goal is really to be safe as we resume our operation. It means we really have to not wait for government to tell us what to do. We have to act. We have to adjust according to the spirit. Now, if, if uncertainty is not going away, then how can we become more agile and dynamic? First, we would have to think ahead, even though we cannot precisely predict what's coming. We will have to learn to explore and uh, ensure that our responses are robust under different scenarios. For example, I think we look at the foreign worker kind of dormitory situation. MOM has just announced uh, new standards that give more space for worker. Uh, that will give us more room to manage our future potential outbreaks. But I think we need to go beyond that. We need to think ahead and ask in a small urban city state like Singapore that Kunihan has been talking about, how many migrant workers should we really have? Um, in sectors that are more dependent on a lot of migrant workers, how can we significantly improve the productivity so that we can still achieve similar or even better outcomes with fewer workers. And we have been looking at dependence on migrant workers, otherwise our costs go up as if they are trade-offs. Is it not possible to see how we can reduce both costs and our dependence on migrant workers all at the same time? Now, if you do that, then it requires us to think again, which means we need to challenge the uh, status quo the existing business practices and assumptions that bind us to old ways of thinking and old ways of doing business. Uh, for example, the rule, the new rule that um, workers can no longer be rotated among construction sites. That means that we have to rethink our approach to construction. We can make changes for the better, not just to comply with the new requirement. Uh, each worker potentially can now be trained or must be trained to do multiple tasks and take on a bigger role. And as we do that, the worker skills will enhance. That itself will facilitate more productive construction methods with greater use of technology. And if we do that and continue to think in that direction, we can potentially turn a constraint into a quest for transformation. And in this case, I think it is clear that business have to take the initiative. And think again, I think as uh, Li Ping alluded to earlier, the business models and business practices and not just complain about the cost of compliance. Third, we also need to think about how we cross traditional organizational boundaries. I think the COVID-19 response in the last few months has demonstrated the value of working across government agencies and even the whole of nation, right? Whether it be the interministerial task force or the task force for the worker dom. We saw government agencies working together 
and also with the private sector, with NGOs, with civil society volunteers to care for COVID-19 patients, including those who need to be quarantined, those recovering, and the foreign worker dons itself. I hope we will not let this spirit of community and collaboration lapse as we recover. As we bounce back, we should not return to the slow, bureaucratic, rule-bound governance systems that works for stable, routine activities. Uh, COVID-19 was anything but routine. Uh, we have seen the value of being agile or being dynamic. I think the same mindset to, be, to act fast, to move frequently, to do so with flexibility, is needed even going forward. We have many major issues, not just on migrant, migrant workers, but including things like uh, we've been struggling with for many years now, our social inequality, better safety nets for low income and aging population. We need breakthrough solutions that actually, if you look at it, require a very similar agile and dynamic approach that we have taken to COVID-19. So I hope that the lessons that we learn in dealing with COVID-19 can actually better equip us to achieve some of these innovative breakthroughs even as we go forward. Okay. I think you've picked up on the foreign worker issue and uh, you're saying that we can afford to do a total rethink on our dependence, especially if we're uh, you know, looking at a new future where there's also constraints for how uh, the foreign workers are not just housed, but work. Um, so uh, with that, can we open up the time to all the panelists uh, very quickly? Did any of you uh, want to respond to what Bun Siong has said? David, about adaptive, uh, adaptive capacity of the country. Who, who do you think are the barriers? Where are the barriers to uh, making just real-time decisions uh, uh, within the government? I guess it's got the sandboxes uh, for the financial sector, but what else? Uh, Lip Ping, businesses doing it differently. Um, you know, uh, can we? Um, and, and then, uh, you know, over to Kun Hien. Uh, for her own take. So anyone wants to go first? I see David, uh, you've put your hand up. So let's cut to you, David. Yeah, I think it's not a matter of uh, can we or should we, but we have to. Uh, and when we realize that we have to, then we'll be more motivated uh, to figure out how to do it. Um, I thought uh, what Kun Hien said is very important as well as what uh, Bun Xiong said, because I can link the two together and think about the adaptation process. Right. Essentially, when we talk about adapting to the new demands, uh, one point that I already made is that your previous behaviors and mindset that were successful may no longer be successful. So you got to do it differently. But there's another element of that is that you might have to learn to do the same thing, achieve the same goal in more than one way. And in the infrastructure analog or urban planning analog would be that could the same facilities and land to have multiple use. Uh, so an office, not just only for co space, but you actually could sometimes co space, sometimes not co space, and whatever that means. So multiple use and flexi use become important. There is a social behavior analog to that. And that is that don't think that I'm team A, you are team B, so I'm always at home, you're always at the office. It means that during the week, and I may sometimes have to be in office, sometimes I have to be at home. That could disrupt your life quite tremendously because you no longer can plan a work from home kind of a model. Sometimes you got to be a, sometimes you've got to be not A and become B. Now, that kind of flexibility means there are two ways or different ways of doing the same thing is very, very important. I just want to make one last point. I think uh, uh, Bun Siong kind of alluded to it and, and of course, the Kun Hien as well as the importance of being collaborative. Uh, you know, we always heard something that the government keeps saying that government cannot do it alone, right? You heard that for several years. 
Now, when that was first spoken about, some of us think that it's propaganda. Oh, government cannot do it alone. I need to talk to you. You need to come along. I think now everybody knows and the government itself knows that you really cannot do it alone. Right? You need to be collaborative. And I think that realization is very important for everybody. When we talk about leaders, we don't just mean political leaders. It could be the leaders in an organization, leader in a business. It could be your group leader. It could be you yourself. And, and collaboration, I think there are two things that we need to remember. First, before you can collaborate, you must have humility. Right? You must be humble enough to realize that you could be wrong. And that whatever that you thought you know best, you might not be the, the one who know everything. That humility is a precursor. Without that humility, if you think that you're always right, then it is impossible to collaborate. And the second important point is that you need to have a learning orientation. Being humble in, is not alone, it's not, it's not enough, you know. You need to really learn. And the kind of learning agility, learning orientation is very important. So I think about it as HLC. Be humble, have the learning orientation, and then you can collaborate. Over to Vernon, I saw that uh, he'd like to uh, weigh in. Um, indeed. So I think, you know, what we have learned is that, you know, the, the spread of the virus can be very quick. And... Uh, we have to adapt as quickly as the virus adapts to uh, spreading among humans. And what we can be very sure about is the virus is not going to change or it's not likely to uh, change to adapt to us. So we have to then adapt and change to the virus. What does this mean? Um, our lifestyles are going to be um, you know, affected in terms of how we move around, how we socialize and, and be in contact with people. You realize that our entire society and economy has been geared towards having more social contact, whether it be workspaces where you have uh, um, areas in your office where you say, please socialize, please interact so that we can have sort of a matrix uh, management or interactions between people, um, you know, global trade, travel, so on. Everything is geared towards interactions. Now, uh, the same interactions are also what spreads the virus, the physical interactions. So we can't just say that we want to go back to the pre-COVID days we have to really work towards this new norm where we say, how can we still maintain social interaction but not physical interaction? How can we still maintain business, um, social interactions, etc., while reducing all the risk that transmits the virus? Only then can we really um, open up uh, with minimal risk because the, the downside is if we don't do that, then you know, we're going to have a huge number of cases, as you can see, um, happening across the world, even as they reopen, and that runs the risk then of um, us going sort of a backwards rather than forwards. Okay, let me pick up on that. Uh, there, there's a question by uh, Chong Ng An, who said, do you see uh, national barriers diminish further now that many industries are finding out uh, the viability of working remotely? So you don't actually have to travel anywhere, but you can uh, do your, uh, make your connections online. How will employment and financial laws change in this regard? So I just want to throw that out there because uh, um, you know, that's adaptation uh, within the economy. Um, you know, anyone wants to uh, uh, deal with that before we go to the next theme that's uh, hot on uh, our Facebook page. I think I can answer a little bit of that. In, in you do that all the day. That, yeah, I see the experience <laughs> overseas. So yes. I, I think if, in the in certainly the markets that we are seeing opening up around the world now, a little bit ahead of Singapore, whether it's Australia and China, 
um, we are actually seeing that people are largely going back to the old pre-COVID behaviors, you know. Um, yeah, in, in a sense of uh, old habits die hard, I would say. So once people feel a certain level of comfort that the virus is either under control or they feel um, um, the governments have uh, reassured them enough, then you, we are seeing in some of the markets, uh, uh, I wouldn't say that it's totally pre-COVID, right? But, you know, if I look at Sydney, if I look at Shanghai, uh, our hotels and restaurants, the bookings are going up. People are going to restaurants. They are starting to hang out in bars. Okay, you know, when they travel there, they are wearing the mask. But people do bounce back quite quickly to their pre-COVID behavior. I don't know what that um, uh, means for Singapore as we open up. Okay, well, that leads me to uh, a comment or question by Claudine Tan, who says, how do you see the hospitality sector getting back on its feet since it has been hit by these uh, in an unprecedented manner on all fronts, uh, room sales, restaurant takings, gym memberships, and so on and so forth. But you're saying that uh, there is to some extent people going back to the old habits of wanting the face-to-face -face meetings. Uh, um, so uh, it's good and bad because we do want some distancing that Vernon made an appeal for. Uh, but you also have industry and industries like you that want a certain amount of travel, commercial travel, business travel, and travel yeah. for recreation. So, what's that outlook? Uh, I guess for Singapore, for I think we have. To, I think for for hospitality industries, uh, you know, we have to be quite honest with ourselves that some will not survive this episode. Uh, a lot of business models will change. A lot of restaurants and bars will not survive this episode because they are unable to cope with social distancing. The ones that that do. Uh, cope well or, or, or are able to adapt will, I think, continue to find that there's a, there's a market, there's a huge amount of pent-up demand. And we are seeing that in the markets that have opened up. But I think it's, it's a new type of normal. We are not going to go back to, you know, uh, packed underground bars where you are literally jostling for space for the next person. But if you can adapt your business model, it'll come back. And obviously, you have to change your protocols for cleaning, for sanitation, for all sorts of things. Right? And the regulations will demand that. So to the point about collaboration and integrating your solutions, you should be having a, a, a good chat and at, at not the bar, but with Vernon, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I guess what you're trying to do is to be able to have your cake and eat it to yeah. make sure that you maintain the protocols that are uh, pandemic proof, but yet to maintain the trade as well. Yes. So, okay, over to Bunxiong, uh, a real quick question from Christopher Gee, our own colleague at IPS, he says, Singapore's global and regional hub status is threatened by the deglobalization trend and uh, compounded now by the pandemic. Is there a need to rethink our economic model? Uh, and I think Kunhian also alluded to some of this. Um, let me just get Bun Xiong to weigh in and uh, give his first step to this very big picture question. Bun Xiong? Yeah, I think some of the uh, value chain Will consolidate. So instead of having a globally dispersed value chain all over in different parts of the world, it probably be in fewer places and probably in closer by areas so that supply chain is not uh, overly stretched. So I think there will be potentially both up and downside. Uh, if you look at the region that we have within ASEAN, uh, as some of the businesses relocate from China, for example, Many of them are going to Vietnam. Many of them potentially can go into Indonesia. In a sense, it may actually benefit Singapore as well because they're actually closer by. It's probably easier to, to link some of the supply chain. And if more activities are being done, then 
it, it could, I think it could cut both ways. It's too early to predict uh, whether we will come out better or worse. But I think there are opportunities that we can take advantage of if we can begin to orchestrate some of that uh, and sector, at the sectoral level. Okay. So it's a challenge to do the globalization and the localization. We can talk about self-reliance and self-sufficiency and maybe even taking back a little bit of uh, production of what we need uh, or uh, really um, even take bits of value chain that uh, other economies are now no longer able to take. How can we fit it all in in the city, Kunhian? <laughs> yeah, I think there needs to be a bit of a mind, mindset shift from the uh, just-in-time to the just-in-case, uh, where efficiency, you used to think about efficiency and high-value add. Now you might have to think a little bit about redundancy and uh, maybe not so much just-in-time. I don't think it's for all, but only for certain very essential uh, uh, goods and products. The other thing is uh, we were talking about adaptability. There is actually quite a lot of tension in trying to achieve so many things, right? Because when you want to, uh, say, uh, reduce uh, crowdedness, you need more land. And Singapore, unlike most other countries, we don't have that much land. We, this is what we have, and we have to live with that. Uh, density and be clever in its use and to create what I call healthy density, be able to design it in such a way. And Singapore has done pretty well in this uh, and we have to really be very, very innovative. You will have a little bit more land take. So even though people say, oh, you know, you de-densify, but it is not, not so uh, straightforward. The other thing is adaptability means, I think, I don't think everybody will go back to doing things the way they do. They have this, this, uh, they have discovered remote working, for example, all right, and online shopping, and even your markets and your hawkers are discovering how to do business. So, in a sense, uh, not entirely, but I think we're social beings. We still need to 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 meet, but it does mean that you will be getting more mixed users uh, in where you live. And we may have to rethink some of the uh, zoning laws and guidelines and think, how do we facilitate? You know, co-working co spaces so far tend to still be more or less around the city. But soon maybe they'll be in your neighborhood center, you know, because suddenly people have discovered that, hey, I can actually do it out of my home, right? So okay. some things to think about. Yeah, but that uh, leads me to um, Hua Kai Hong's question. Uh, Kai Hong uh, is very much part of the IPS uh, family. He asked, what would be industry standards for physical distancing and seating for air and land travel? Uh, that's one thing which I guess Bernard uh, could help us with. Um, but Kun Hien, uh, you mentioned de-densifying Singapore. And I think there was a comment earlier about what really that might mean because you did say we all know we're a very uh, land constrained city. So the uh, impetus previously was to uh, densify, intensify the use of the land that we were already using. So now with uh, the, now that we moved into the age of pandemics, um, you know, we shouldn't just be talking about physical distancing on air travel, uh, but really how we live each day. And you mentioned that in your opening remarks. So I think there is some, uh, a call to uh, just give you a little bit more time to flesh out how do we de-densify 
Singapore. I think you're talking about sectors and segments and regions, aren't you? Yeah. So this is all the land that we have and we have to deal with that. I think the, the big question really is how do you develop healthy density? In some cities, people are beginning to move to the suburbs. We don't have the suburbs to move into. This is what we have. But I think uh, density is not all bad because density is where people get together and the cities become economic, political and social powerhouses because of density. So you can't throw the baby out with the bath water, but it's, it's a matter of design. If you look at it, Hong Kong, Seoul, Taipei did manage to deal with the pandemic quite well, even though they're very dense cities. So I suspect it's more at a much local level in terms of the design. As I say, in communal living, you may have to do a little bit more segregation rather than too many people living in the same homes. If you have parks and a lot of public spaces, people can go to these. And in that sense, by decentralizing and localizing, people are not all congregated in the same place. They're not all in the CBD and they're not all in the same national park because they have all these facilities around them that you can spread. So maybe the better word to use is spread rather than everybody congregating in the same place. So there are clever ways to do it. Singapore has done it reasonably well. I mean, we've weaved in greenery, water bodies, uh, and we juxtapose what is very high rise with low rise. So that sense of density is actually quite manageable, what I call livable density. Right, thank you so much for that. Um, I think, uh, may I go back to Bunsyong? Uh, there's somebody who's, uh, Maya Menon has asked, population density has become an issue in transmission. Uh, provocative question, should we now downsize the 6.9 million population planning target. Uh, Kun Hien has talked about healthy density, so it's possible to have uh, uh, the size that we have and maybe presumably the population parameter of 6.9. What are your thoughts in terms of uh, uh, adapting? You, you, you talked about uh, a question of industry, maybe rejigging. Uh, there was a question about changing the economic model. So, uh, your response to Ms. Menon's uh, question, Bunxiong? Yeah, I think the, uh, the 6.9 million, actually, Kunian will be in a better position to answer. Uh, it's probably not something that uh, is cast in stone. In fact, I've also seen numbers which are much higher than 6.9 million uh, in our planning. And I think as Kunian had already alluded to, is really how we plan and design the, the density so that we can have a, a 6.9 or even higher. Uh, and yet with high quality uh, lifestyle and with safe and uh, healthy environments, um, I, I think it's possible. I don't think there's a need to relook at that. It's, I think it's more in the micro details of how do we make sure that whether it's 6.9 or 7 or 5 or whatever, we live in a way that allow us to achieve a high quality of life, uh, the outcomes that we want, but yet in today's environment, safe and healthy. I think Vernon wanted to add to it. Yes, Vernon, over to you. Yes, so... In fact, I want to just point out that it's not the density that uh, matters. Density is just one of many factors. Um, the, other, the, the actual what spreads disease is actually the close physical interactions. Um, and, and maybe in certain sense, um, you know, people interacting, especially when they're ill and so on. So there are many factors that actually affects disease spread. If you recall some of the earlier um, examples of 
how disease had spread in certain office environments or, or in certain social environments was because uh, people who were ill went to those settings um, yes. and, and then subsequently spread disease. So that social responsibility, that awareness is important. Um, also, the type of interactions and the scale of interactions uh, also make a difference. And so density doesn't, another reason why I think density doesn't by itself matter so much is look at a circuit breaker. Density hasn't changed, but what we've done is we have reduced the opportunities for spread substantially. And I think we can achieve that balance with all the different safe management measures, not just to thin out. Um, the other example I think uh, Bunyan mentioned earlier, uh, many cities in Singapore included, we've rolled out different measures that although we are dense, we manage to control, yet other locations, although they are population sparse, have huge um, epidemics, not just of uh, COVID-19, but other diseases as well. So I think we need to take all this into consideration before we just go and say, you know, cut down the density of Singapore and that that will naturally solve the problem. I think that um, is maybe too narrow a view. It's not going to solve that problem so quickly and so easily. Okay, David, it's over to you. This is really up your alley. How do people want to connect? Where do they connect? And uh, uh, it, it, so that this is not just a question of density, but spread. Over to you, David. Well, I think it is quite a challenge because the reality of it, or at least for the next few months, is about social distancing, right? That, that you're not supposed to have the physical proximity. Um, but at the same time, what you lose out is the social interaction. You know, we can, I can talk to you now uh, online. It's really quite different when you meet up face to face, where you can give someone a pet, when you see a real smile and a real tears, when you need to console somebody. So those differences are not trivial you know, because we do have uh, some innate social sense of uh, social being and social interactions that sometimes even the virtual space uh, cannot replace. So in the very long term, you cannot have a situation where everybody keeps social distancing and you don't interact at all and everybody must be one meter apart. It is not a kind of a human life that I think uh, we, are, we have evolved into that we can live with. But social distancing therefore cannot be a permanent thing whereby that we are not we, we must never get within one meter of each other. I think it is not a possible way for the world to function. I want to say very quickly that density is not the same as crowdedness. You know, if you put all of us in the same meeting room for 10 people that we love each other, it is not only not dense, well, the density is there, right? 10 people in the room. Uh, we feel actually vibrant. We enjoy each other's company. But if you put five of us in the room, the same room, and we hate each other, the density is lower. But you're going to want to die to get out of that room. So the issue is not just density. The issue is about the nature of relationship with each other. And don't forget about the social interaction. Each time we talk about population, you cannot get away from social interaction issues, social integration issues, and so on. So within a particular range, the higher the density, which is, I think, what everybody is alluded to, you actually can have a higher quality of life. In fact, too low density, there's no vibrancy. Why would I want to go out and enjoy myself socially when there's only 3% in a huge space? Right? In other words, uh, uh, it is not a linear function. Number two, it is about interactions, about how to live uh, quality life. And number three, uh, you can have a very dense place. I stay at Tanjung Baga, it's pretty dense during lunchtime. But if we were to spread out our lunchtime better, then it will not be as dense. But it's the same number of people in the same number of space. That's the whole idea of our uh, spread, uh, spreading up. Okay, so I, I guess uh, we'll probably see the tangible expression of being able to have our cake and eat it, dense, but then also segregation in the quick build dormitories that were announced uh, yesterday. Uh, Kunhian, over to you. How do you do both at the same time? Uh, I think you mentioned it just now, but just uh, uh, spell it out for us tangibly, please. 
Well, I, I'm not here to give all the answers, but it's something we have to work at. Uh, but actually for the worker dorms, the, the, it's more the design at the local level, really. You know, it's not, not just the numbers that are there, but at uh, designing at the local level, it's how they design every floor, every room where there's a degree of segregation and they don't share uh, uh, toilets so much, less people sharing toilets. So I think it's, it's more a matter of design. Right, but definitely, if uh, uh, they have uh, a better spaces, uh, more general spaces, you don't need uh, to take up a, a lot more land. So I think that is something that will uh, have to be studied. Uh, okay. The other thing which I suppose that has come out of this is people are starting to accept that yeah, yeah, you may have the uh, worker dorm next to you, and it's fine. Yeah. Right. <laughs> because if you have to spread them out, they have to be somewhere, you know. And social attitudes have to modify so that we can accommodate. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Now, uh, can I, uh, Liking, did you want to weigh in on this question? Because we are talking about workers and, uh, uh, you know, what's the workforce that you need in place in order to bounce back here in Singapore? Uh, does the foreign workforce matter to you? Look, I think the foreign workforce does matter. I, 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 I... I mean, it'd be ideal world where we say we can do without any foreign workers, right? But the reality is skills are such that you need a variety of people coming from different places with different skills. And Singapore is too small a population to say that we can be completely self-reliant. But at the same time, you know, we can do better. If you look at countries uh, where we operate, places like Australia, if you look at the way they operate a restaurant and a, and a hotel, they are far more efficient than us. And nobody will say that Sydney's uh, food scene is less vibrant than Singapore's, for example, right? But the reality is, they are, you know, we have to examine how we do things here. We are, we are much more inefficient. And that's largely because Australia's labour cost is so much higher, right? So if we pay the, the right input cost, we pay the right cost for labour, people will get much more efficient. But what we do sometimes fall into is get used to paying too little for some services. And, and people uh, sometimes learn to accept it. But actually, you know, if you increase... If you pay the right price for something, people get efficient at, 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 at that particular activity. Okay, thank you so much. Um, I'd like to cut over to uh, Bun Xiong. There have been quite a few questions about uh, this idea of the need for collaboration uh, as we try and bounce back from COVID-19. A lot of solutions require different sectors to speak to each other and also the government facilitating or it is itself uh, very much part of the solution. So one question uh, from Tanan Sir, who is adjunct at uh, IPS. He asks, on dealing with uncertainty, we need foresight and judgment call on the part of leaders. Leaders are, however, expected to be bold, even if they may, may be judged harshly on the basis of hindsight. So you go forward, you're trying to be agile, you take a decision because you're making those decisions in real time without all the information you need. But is this gonna come back to you uh, in terms of either your audiences or your voters or, uh, you know, your stakeholders saying, now, why did you take that decision at that time? So not quite so easy, Bun Xiong. Um, you, you set out the ideal, but there's also stakeholders who uh, may not be on board with you. Over to you, Bun Xiong. Yeah, I think that is, we are in a transition. We have developed a governance system based on clear rules, based on no uh, uncertainty, uh, and everything works according to uh, our plan. I think that it's no longer tenable going forward. 
uh, in fact, by staying with the same old ways of operating, when we plan carefully everything, act according to plan, and make sure we check everything for variances and deviations that we don't deviate from our plan, that only works when the environment is stable. When whatever we plan is still relevant five, 10 years later, um, in an environment that we are going through, that is no longer the case. And okay. I think this COVID-19, um, it's good that the government's uh, leaders are not as defensive uh, and they were willing to admit that, yeah, we did not know at the time that uh, uh, we acted based on what we knew. So I hope that this will start a process where we begin to uh, operate in a different environment. Our expectation of government leaders, we should not expect them to be all-knowing. It is not possible. We should not expect them to make no mistakes, um, but to operate with what they have. And I think we judge them not just on single decisions, but judge them on the overall pattern of what we have achieved. So no point judging them on the foreign worker issue, the dorm spread or the mass issue. Look at how overall we have managed our COVID-19. I think that is the right way to do it. Look at the overall portfolio of the multiple decisions rather than just single decisions and, and criticize it. I think we as uh, a society, we have individual citizens would have to learn. If we don't, then we will have the government that we expect. And I think that will eventually cause us to fail. Okay. Uh, um, uh, there's one question. I think uh, it's also um, um, rides on what you had said just now about looking at uh, the vulnerable groups. Uh, you mentioned a few of them. John Tan has said, uh, must vulnerable groups like those with pre-existing medical conditions and the elderly continue to hide while the society at large lives with the virus. But that leads to our larger point about who have we left behind or how can we make sure we do not leave anyone behind as we move to this uh, post-COVID new normal. The government's taking uh, fresh sets of decisions under uh, new and unfolding conditions. Um, but you know, do we see uh, you know, a way in which we are trying to bring everyone on board? Uh, to you, Bunstiong and David, later, very quickly. Yes, I think we have seen uh, the best of probably a lot of our society in the last few months where people come together to really help uh, each other. And even the foreign workers, there used to be a prejudice and bias, and now we see people volunteering and willing to accept uh, them in our, our neighborhood. But my fear is that as we recover and bounce back, the tendency is then to revert to our old ways of uh, optimizing outcomes only for ourselves and to achieve only our own KPIs and our own programs. And we forget uh, the lessons that we have learned and we lose sight of the fact that we are part of a larger whole. Um, I hope that will not happen. I hope the crisis would have inspired in us a sense of commitment that we are in all this together. We need to serve and help each other and not expect the government to do everything. If there's in a neighborhood, we know a neighbor who needs help, we should be the one to do it instead of calling a social service agency, it doesn't make sense. Um, so less institutionalized, less formalized, more personal, more community-based, I think- And more direct. And more direct, presumably. And more direct, correct. Over to David, your quick take on this before we move to the uh, last few comments. Yeah, quick one. Uh, the question is on vulnerable groups and what we can do. Uh, I think the MSF, uh, Ministry of uh, Social Development and Family, of course, is uh, trying to take a very holistic approach to it. 
And the whole idea of collaboration is to make sure you understand the ground, make sure you talk to the people. Social workers you definitely want to talk to, but talk to normal people, right? Normal people that you interact with and all, and you find that you may begin to see things uh, that you are not aware of. So besides the fact that it's not just government, you can do something. We also want to ensure that what government does, the resources they put in, you're putting into the right place. You have uh, defined the problem correctly. And in order to do that, uh, you have to get out of your comfort zone because the world has changed. The same problems that used to exist in the past 10 years might be quite different right now. Right? So that, that thing is something that we need to realize. I do want to say a very quick thing about what Buddhist Young said about, uh, you know, that the public should not expect leaders to be perfect. Uh, another way to look at it is that, no, that's not what the public were expecting. Maybe that's what the leaders thought. In other words, sometimes the leaders have done so well in the place that we are used to, uh, you are quite afraid because you are good stewardship of the resources you have uh, to be in a situation whereby you don't do as well as your predecessors or that is the perception of that. And that is the underlying psychology that we need to realize, right? When you see something is wrong, the public has a strong tendency to say that it is the problem with the leaders. You make an internal attribution. But when the, something is wrong, the leaders have a tendency to say that it's not internal. It's me, it's the vulgar situation that we are dealing with. But when you see something successful that you yourself did, you will tend to attribute success to yourself. When you see something successful that another person did, you will attribute it to the situation. That's a fundamental psychological bias that we all have that we all need to learn to get across. I need to learn to get over with. I learn to give success when it is due, but learn to admit mistakes and learn to acknowledge that you are not perfect. You know, if the government thought it is perfect, I'm not saying that it does, but if the government thought so, and if we thought so, we are all in trouble, right? Because it's a vulgar situation. How can we all be uh, always correct all the time? We'll be happily, consistently wrong, you know, and that's something that you need to avoid. Well, may I add something that as we look at the whole range of policy domains, there will be some domains which are far more stable than others and some domains where you choose to have more innovation than uh, others. Uh, we've seen the government take the uh, modality of identifying domains where you can have uh, regulatory sandboxes to uh, innovate or in this case with COVID to try out things because uh, necessity has uh, forced you to try those things out. So I suppose uh, uh, when we judge as governance scholars, we need to look at where uh, there's a, been an effective identification of those domains which need to be changed and modified. And therefore then was there the flexibility and adaptability to pilot and to experiment and to do something new. I think uh, quite interestingly, we've seen through this COVID period, the government adopt the idea of a financial circuit breaker. And that was uh, probably quite innovative as well. So um, uh, I would ask uh, everyone to, uh, you know, give us some of their closing thoughts about that, uh, whether we think as a system, uh, government, business, people, we are adaptive enough to make sure that we can bounce back, bounce back fast, adopt what needs to be adopted for a smooth and safe recovery and then adapt so that we have ways in which we're dealing with the short-term crisis that also meets the long-term uh, strategy of growth and renewal and becoming more inclusive society. I'll start with Vernon. Uh, Vernon, again, uh, 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 Keegan has said, well, there's a possibility of re, uh, the transmission of uh, the virus popping right up again uh, with the uh, lifting of the circuit breaker. Uh, you know, I, I think we cannot resist the question uh, and, and, and ask, well, what do we do then? Do we live with a certain 
level of tolerance among the spread of parameters you discussed? And do you think the public's ready for that? Do we understand that? Or uh, who else needs to understand that? Then after that, I'll run through the same speaking order and ask you all for your closing remarks on whether we are capable of adapting in order to bounce back well. Vernon, kick off, please. Sure. So actually, um, you know, as we open up, um, there will certainly be that risk of, uh, you know, transmission occurring. I mean, and, and we have to accept that as we open up, there will be that risk. It's not just in Singapore, but all across the world. It's what we then do to reduce or mitigate that risk that's important. Don't forget that, um, you know, before the circuit breaker, somewhere in February, when we had our first wave of case, cases after, uh, I mean, from China, we managed to control that. And we, we are in a much stronger place. So I would say there are three things that we must bear in mind as we deal with this virus. Number one, it's in for the long haul. And the virus is not going to adapt to us. We have to adapt to the virus. So we have to bear that in mind. We have to change. The virus is not going to change for us and, and adapt to what we want to do. The second is that we have to bear in mind and learn from um, the evidence and also learn from what we have just been through. So as we you know, just come out of a, a circuit breaker, we want to be out and about, we want to do more. Uh, we also have to bear in mind that we need to ensure that all this is done in a safe manner. And, and third, I think it's the point that had been brought up many times during this forum, is that we can't do it alone. The government can't do it alone. Businesses can't do it alone. The people can't do it alone. We all have to work together because the only way we can fight against this virus and win is if we work together, we adopt all these safe management measures, we be socially responsible, and we look out for each other. I think this is the only way we can ensure that as we open um, the economy, we open society in you know, um, a stepwise fashion, hopefully we can get to this new normal that we can say, hey, this new normal is actually not so bad. And at the same time, we are keeping infection rates really low. That's what we want to achieve. So okay. that's Thank um, you. what I hope everyone can do. Thank you. Thank you, Vernon. Over to you, David. Final thoughts, please. Yes, I think we can adapt uh, if we have character and if we have competence. So we need to develop that competence to solve problems. And we need to have the character to be sure what we are doing, have the integrity, transparency, accountability and the learning agility and the humility and so on. I will end, I, I will end this way with an analog. Right? Imagine you're a team Singapore walking along the cliff and suddenly you fell into this deep valley. Now, that's exactly what happened in COVID. We were, everybody was happy, we were doing well and suddenly you, know, you, you fell down and it is quite a deep cliff that you fell down. There's no magic trampoline for you to bounce back. So when we talk about bouncing back, even if you bounce back, Number one, there's no trampoline to bounce back. And number two, when you get back, it's not to the same place where you started just before you fell. You're going to move forward to the other side of the cliff. What happened now is that Team Singapore, your team who, is, uh, who has fallen down, is all over the place and there's going to be quite a steep climb upwards. Some people are going to climb faster than others, but in order for the team to move along, you actually need to help out, look out for each other. You may be the team leader, but there's, you have blind spots. So you need to collaborate and ask, hey, hey, who else did you see? What else do we need to do? And you may not be the one climbing the fastest, right? Find a place to climb so that you can pick up the rest with you. And then I think we can move forward together and move forward. Thank you, David. Very inspirational. Over to you, Payne. Well, speaking as someone who has the, the perspective of seeing what other jurisdictions have done too, right? Yes. Um, in terms of policy responses in places like Australia, UK, you know, EU, I, I would say from a point of view of, of uh, 
businesses in Singapore, the government has been quite responsive. So I do feel that our our um, um, policies here will put us in a good stead to, for a good bounce back. You know, they have been responsive. They've been agile. You know, and I've been uh, on a couple of these panels where the government is seeking feedback on effects on businesses, what's happening with phase one, what's happening with uh, the early um, subsidies, the JSS and all this. So you can see a very, very fine judged uh, sort of feedback loop. And I, and I do think it's, it's working from what I, I can see from my colleagues in, in the industry, hospitality, travel. Uh, most of them are heartened by the, the very strong and a very effective policy to date. And uh, we, we do hope it continues because okay. Singapore will need it. It's going to be a very difficult environment. Thank you. So uh, responsiveness, policy responsiveness through a very deep engagement with the stakeholders yes, right, is the been, formula. Yes. Thank you so much, Bling. Over to uh, Kun Yen. Okay, I think I'll just, uh, very similar thoughts to some of the other panelists. The key is really to learn, to adapt and to innovate in whichever area we are working on, whether it's city planning or in businesses and economy, in uh, uh, management of manpower, I think it's really about learning, adapting and innovating. And in particular, it really also is an opportunity, isn't it? Because when you have to, you can think of pretty good solutions, you know? So in, in I think it's also, an, uh, we should look at the opportunities as well. Can we harness technology? Uh, we are less afraid to try new things because you are pushed to really just try new things. So we yes. should open up and try new things. And I think finally, one of the wonderful things is the harnessing of the community. Uh, I, I myself have been working with some of the community groups and it's fantastic. And uh, I really hope this collaboration and that energy and that uh, togetherness and spirit will continue even okay. uh, post-COVID because it's a, it's a strength that we have and we should harness it. Thank you, Kun Now to Bun Xiong, your closing remarks, please, very quickly. Thank you. I think I, think I agree with Kun Yen. I think it's, it's a tremendous opportunity. Uh, we have been um, quite upfront, I think, with our citizens about the reality of the, uh, the virus and the, how bad the situation is and how uncertain they are. And um, a fine balance between providing support, government providing support, and yet not overly doing it and uh, creating dependency for individuals and firms to still take responsibility and to really, because they are facing difficulties, it's a good chance to now develop new ideas and new solutions to resolve them. So I think if we keep at it, I, my, my fear is that actually we relax it too fast if the virus goes away uh, too quickly. But if we keep at it, I think we'll learn new skills and new capabilities that will stand us in very, very good state. And not only will we bounce back, I think we can be in a much better position a few years down the road because of what we are learning uh, through this crisis. I'm so glad we're able to end this forum on such a positive note. Uh, the idea is really that we, will, we should go out there and harness the community, the wisdom of the community as we have done this afternoon. Thank you for joining me and I really wish to uh, acknowledge our gratitude at IPS to our friends, uh, not just those on Facebook who offered their comments and questions, but certainly the panelists this afternoon, uh, Dr. Vernon Lee, Professor David Chan, uh, Mr. Lolik Ping, uh, Dr. Chong Kun Hien, and Dr. Nyo Bun Xiong. Thank you. Stay safe and stay well. <laughs>